0: The software supply chain refers to the process of creating and distributing software products. This includes all of the steps involved in creating, testing, packaging and delivering software to end users or customers. Socket is a new security company that can protect your most critical apps from supply chain attacks. They are taking an entirely new approach to one of the hardest problems in security in a stagnant part of the industry that has historically been obsessed with just reporting on known vulnerabilities. Feroz is the founder and CEO of Socket Security and he joins us today. This episode is hosted by Jordi Mon Companies. Check out the show notes to follow him on Twitter.
1: Well, Feroz, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks, it's awesome to be here. It is your third time here, right? Yeah, that's right, yeah. What did you come to talk about with Jeff back in the day?
0: Uh, I think the first time I was on Software Engineering Daily was to talk about WebTorrent, the open source project that I started uh, back in 2013.
1: What was it about? Because you told me about it, but it's freaking crazy.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, so the vision was let's build a BitTorrent application that works on the web. So, you know, take, take a Torrent client, build it in JavaScript, and then let's get all the browsers talking to each other <laughs> and talking to uh, the existing BitTorrent apps. So building a big, big browser-to-browser network of a bunch of people sharing data with each other. Did, where did the idea come from? Where did you get the insight or at least the curiosity to dive into this? So I've always loved to build things that surprise people. And uh, you know, when I learned about WebRTC as a technology, um, I think my mind immediately jumped to you know, well. We can send arbitrary data between browsers. So, you know, I, I thought I thought this would be the most uh, shocking and surprising use case. And I've always loved to, I've always loved uh, making software do things that it shouldn't do. <laughs> I think I have just a mischievous mind. And uh, you know, if I love discovering the unwritten rules of a system. Like not just you know what it's documented to do, but yeah. actually what are the true rules? What are the ground ground rules of the, of the actual system? Because that's how you find interesting things. That's how you hack. That's how you find vulnerabilities. Uh, and 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 that stuff's just fun to me.
1: Do you, do you have a specific go-to way uh, um way to go about this like discovering the undocumented parts of a browser system, of a protocol, of a network? I mean, I'm not it's not that I'm um asking you to tell us your hacker tricks, but is there is there yeah, do do you go about in any way exploring
0: a network, for example? I think so when I when I look at a system for the first time, my mind just immediately starts thinking about how can I break this? <laughs> and I don't know if I, you know, what uh, about me <laughs> makes me think that way, but usually.
1: Oh, <laughs> Ian Coldwater, who I interviewed in KubeCon EU, so uh, a month ago or something, said exactly the same. She just wants to break things without bad intent, actually, right, right. with a good intent.
0: It's a curiosity mindset, yeah. Nice.
1: Yeah. So, okay, but we're here in open source, uh, Summit North America in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada, and you're here with another project, actually, right? Mm-hmm. One that you started a year ago? A couple years ago. Okay. Yeah. So what is it about?
0: So it's called Socket Security, and uh, we're a security tool that helps companies safely use open source software. So we we help companies, uh, you know, and developers really, uh, to assess open source packages, figure out whether they're risky, whether they're safe to use, and. Really um, catch malware supply chain attacks, any kind of unwanted badness in your open source packages, and believe me, there's a lot of that today in uh, in these in these open source ecosystems unfortunately
1: yeah well I mean yeah it's a function of freedom right and and sort of like entropy this this will happen at that rate uh, as long as we put measures that are effective, I think we shouldn't sort of like trump um, you know the the Creativity and the amount of software that is being created, especially in a community like JavaScript. I think this is more endemic to the JavaScript community because it's incredibly creative, incredibly like minimal in the sense of the amount of the the, the, the amount of functionality each one of the packages uh, covers and does. And uh, that, yeah, that leaves a lot of surface of attack, right? I guess in a way, because you decided to start with JavaScript, right? So you come, you master that that world in a way, right? That language specifically.
0: Yeah, so, you know, as we mentioned, I worked on WebTorrent, and while I was building that open source project, uh, you know, I started it back in 2013, um, I ended up writing a whole bunch of open source libraries as part of, you know, building this project. So every component of the, of the application was split up into a different, different library. And this is very common in the JavaScript community. Uh, people like to really use, they, they decompose the software quite a bit into smaller pieces. Which has its advantages you know obviously you get more code reuse yeah. you get um, you know, a, 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 just a thriving module ecosystem with yeah. lots of lots of functionality um, and it's actually um, you know that's why it's probably one of the fastest growing and most vibrant ecosystems is it's very accessible it's very easy to publish packages and so um, that's how I got my start and I ended up uh, finding myself kind of after you know after a few years of doing this um, in a position where my software was being depended upon by uh, like m- most of the Fortune 500, to be honest with you. Um, and it was shocking to me because I was some, you know, random 20-year-old <laughs> uh, in my 20s kind of kid writing software, putting it on, online, and then s- to find myself suddenly um, being depended upon by these companies in these popular projects. And I think, you know, today my, my open source code probably has, you know, I would not be surprised. It's over a billion downloads per month. Wow! Because that's just how the scale of npm yes. is. It's so huge. It's it's you get depended upon by one library, and then suddenly you know you're built into every website, every uh, front end in the world, right? Yeah, yeah, and it's, crazy. It's, it's crazy to think that you know that that's the reach of this supply chain, the software supply chain.
1: Yeah. Well, now that you mentioned software supply chain, I would like to comment that in in the case of open source projects or components, software components, snippets, whatever, the size of it. I think the, the better description for that would be a dependency chain, because you give away, in your case, the software that you mentioned that has billions of downloads per month. That that probably you gave it away, the source code, right? So in a way, and, and you're giving it as is, right? Mm-hmm. So you're not offering any services around it, and you're not offering any support. You you just give it as is. Mm-hmm. So I think that a better description of that chain is a dependency chain rather than a supply chain. But I wonder if. In any case, let's call both uh, su- su- software supply chain. You have any explanations for the, I guess the rise in um, problematic attacks and uh, across the board and an explanation for that, yes?
0: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So there's a few reasons why I think we're seeing more software supply chain attacks. And for those who don't know, you know, a software supply chain attack is just when um, one of your open source dependencies you know, one of your components that you rely upon to build your final application, um, you, know, has, uh, you know, is compromised in some way. And therefore, you know, your application is affected. Um, because remember, at the end of the day, we're building our apps out of all these open source components. And uh, when, the, when we actually run the application at the end of the day, it's, it's running in one, you know, usually it's in one process, it's one application. It doesn't really matter whether you wrote the code yourself or whether one of your dependencies you know, has, has an issue, at the end of the day, it's in, it's in, the, it's in the final app. You
1: attribute. have made it your code, after all, right? Whether Correct. someone else wrote it, you have incorporated it into what you're shipping out there,
0: right? Correct, and then therefore you're responsible for, yeah. that, final, yeah. for that final product, right? So, so, um, so I think the, th- the reasons why we're seeing more attacks are the way we write software has changed quite a lot in the last oh, decade. Okay. So just in my time you know, in open source, I've seen the size of dependencies go down and the number of dependencies that we use go up. So um, just as one example, uh, Discord, the popular yep. messaging app, uh, their Electron desktop app that they ship to their users okay. has nearly 20,000 dependencies. And if you look at the commits in those dependencies and look at kind of the unique number of committers, so yes. who, who, how many people have contributed to those 20,000 dependencies, it's almost 400,000 individuals. And they come from over 200 countries. Right? So that's the scale we're dealing with here. And I mean, in a way, it's beautiful. This is how open source works. Exactly. All those people working together, they don't even know each other. Yeah, don't know. it's beautiful. It's beautiful, but it's also, you know, it's also, it means one bad apple, right? One one person has has the ability to affect, um, you know, a lot of people. And so so I think that's the first reason is really just we're now depending on a lot more uh, open source dependencies. Now, there's reasons why that, and I can talk forever about kind of like why has that uh, trend all happened, but I think GitHub has made it a lot easier for people to start a project. It's standardized the way that we contribute to projects. And I think also um, new package managers like NPM have actually solved um, this, this classic problem of dependency hell where, uh, <laughs> in a way, where uh, it depends on your definition of dependency hell. No, no, <laughs> but so d- define it and yeah. uh,
1: explain how, how it's solved,
0: yeah. in a way. Dependency, the classic definition of dependency hell is when you have a situation where you, you've you gotten your dependencies into a state where you can't actually install the full set of them. So for the, the most common case is, um, I, I need to install uh, Foo version one and Foo version two. And my dependent, my package manager will tell me, you have to pick one version. You can't <laughs> install both of those versions, right? And so NPM sort of solved that by saying, we'll just install both versions. And then we'll give uh, anyone that wants version one, the version one. And we'll give anyone that wants version two, version two. Mm-hmm. And uh, we can all, you know, just move on from this problem. And, and, and it solves the problem of dependency hell. The downside of that, uh, and then, by, the way, by the way, that's why NPM has, is you know, so popular, I think, is because it's so easy for the developer. They never get themselves into a situation where the, the package manager errors okay. on them. Okay. But the downside is that now there's really no cost to adding dependencies because before there was like some risk you're going to get yourself into this bad state. But now with NPM, you can install as many dependencies as you yeah. want. And so the, the, the incentive to not create like a 10-line dependency or 100, li- 100 lines of code dependency is gone out the window because yeah. now there's no cost to doing yeah. that. And, yeah. so, and so that's good in a way, you know, in the sense of code reuse, but it's bad in the sense that now my, you know, my, my Hello World, if I want to get started with React, the most popular JavaScript web framework, yeah. and I want to build a website and I want to start with React, I, I run the Hello World uh, example, I end up with 1,400 dependencies in my dependency tree. How many? 1,400. <laughs> just to get Hello World to show up on the screen. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, that's the way it is today though. That's, <laughs> that's, the, that's the, the status quo. So, so I mean, that's the main reason um, you asked for, I mean, if there's a bunch of reasons, but um, I think the other thing is the pace of software. It's so yeah. much faster than 10 years ago. Yeah. We used to do um, you know quarterly deploys with yeah. QA periods. And now everybody pretty much does uh, you know continuous deployment, um, there's mul- multiple times per day you might be going shipping new code into oh, yeah. production and so you end up with uh, just like this rate of change where there is no security QA process. It's like any developer can add a dependency and update a dependency and that's going to be running in production like five minutes later, right?
1: So before we move on to what Socket does to sort of like solve that, or at least partially I guess, but uh, so- try to solve this problem and, and a few others, um, you you. you would like to make a distinction about the um, attention that uh, vulnerabilities receive and what vulnerabilities really are, versus malware, which is the code that is actually executing a, you know, a function or whatever with bad intent, right? So mm-hmm. do, do you have a reason? Could you explain what your problem with, with, with the current um, uh, attention to those two concepts is, and uh, how would you s- solve it in a way, I guess?
0: Yeah, I mean, so this comes from the, you know the, just the recognition of you know when you look at the types of uh, issues that affect the open source community, the one thing that I think is 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 destroying trust the most in open source is these huge software supply chains where there's bad apples that, that pop up from time to time and basically infect the, s- the supply chain with with some kind of you know compromised package yeah. or hijacked package, and that uh, ends up you know. Uh, causing a massive disruption to the community the most there's so many examples of this but you know there's there was an example recently where somebody yes t- to protest the you it, know, it was it was
1: it was actually did it uh, this person did it on purpose to protest right mm-hmm. but it caused uh, a major disruption not only a major disruption but um, uh, you know the lack of trust I guess has exponentially grown since that could you yeah. explain
0: sure I mean so so basically you know it's not just protests, but the, let's use this as an example, right? So, you know, this, there was a maintainer who, to protest the war in, in Ukraine, um, decided to add code to their package that would delete your hard drive effectively if, if you had an IP address that appeared to be uh, Russian. Russian, yeah. And I mean, that's just one example, but there's, there's tons of these ones where people put random code, uh, on, on, you know, hidden behavior, basically, into their packages uh, or, or uh, you know, code designed that's not designed to do what the package is yeah, supposed to be doing, correct. right? And so this is the kind of thing that destroys... Trust in in the, in that project, right? And and uh, so that was that's a big thing that's happening. There's also you know uh, maintainers that are just suffering under kind of a financial burden of of uh, you know nobody supporting their projects, and so those people are in a position where if someone comes along and wants to offer them some money to you know, sell the project or whatever, uh, or even just someone comes along offering a helping hand and says, hey, can I can I be a maintainer of your project? Uh, you're not really maintaining it anymore. <laughs> that people usually add new people, and that's that's a pretty normal part of open yeah. source. But that leads to you know now now you have a new owner potentially for one of these 1,400 dependencies yeah, that correct. you're using, and uh, and so um, so basically to answer your question about the vulns versus uh, malware, malware situation, you know I feel like the the entire uh, security community is somewhat obsessed with uh, known vulnerabilities and CVEs. Uh, at the expense of kind of all the other sources of, of supply chain risk, and um, and I think part of that is because it's easy to to look at known vulnerabilities. Hmm. There's a there's a big database of them, the NVD, right? Hmm. And you just wait for a security researcher to find a bug in a package to report it there, and then. You know, it's very, very easy to write tooling that can just go around and say, "All right, you know, you have these 10 vulnerabilities in these packages." The problem with this approach is, first of all, it's extremely noisy. Right? There's so many CVEs that that come up to the point where developers and security teams are burdened and overwhelmed, and nobody can really. A lot of teams are just drowning under hundreds or even thousands of these alerts. And the other problem is when you actually go to fix them, 90, 95% of the time, they're not actually making a meaningful security impact because that code isn't even used. So you're just doing busy work, fixing yeah. fixing you know vulnerabilities that are never actually exploitable in production. So so that that means that you know you have these teams wasting all this time and and effort and, and effort, and they're yeah. not even making things better. Yeah. Right. And then, finally, um, you know, the um, uh, the focus on vulnerabilities uh, is to the detriment of, of 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 these much more significant threats like mm-hmm. malware and supply chain attacks. Because vulnerabilities, while They may be exploited, right? They they won't always be right away. And so, uh, in in terms of what to prioritize, you know, the fact that that we just pull in code that we haven't read and then we run it in our application, and that code could do anything, right? That's a bigger problem than the fact that uh, code, you know, might uh, might potentially not work correctly in certain situations.
1: And do you reckon there's any reason that explains that? Is it? Is it because um, focusing on vulnerabilities is an easier job than actually finding malware, you reckon? I think so. I mean, okay. so,
0: so finding vulns is, is uh, you know, it's a lot of work for the security researchers yeah. that do it. But as a security tool perspective, if you're yeah. a security vendor, uh, and you're, you know, that's why there's so many vendors that do known vulnerabilities yeah. is because all they really do is they resell this, this public data set, which is the National Vulnerability Database or the NVD. And they're just reselling that, that information. And maybe they've enhanced it a little bit. But uh, fundamentally, you know, it's not a very hard job. It's a commodity. That's why you have like dozens and you know, hundreds of these companies that do this. Uh, and some of them do good work. I'm not trying to yeah, disparage yeah. it, but obviously vulnerabilities are important to, to address. But what I'm saying is it's so much easier than saying here's a blob of code. And actually, here's a blob of, of, of 10,000 pieces of code from written by different people. Tell me whether it's safe to run this in, yeah. in, my, in, my, in my app. That's actually hard, and that's what we're trying to do. How does Socket
1: does that for NPM, so JavaScript, and PyP, and therefore um, Python?
0: So yeah, we do it by uh, analyzing every new package published to NPM and to PyPI. So we look at every new package, and we run it through a gauntlet of static analysis uh, tests. And we also look at the metadata of the package and also the maintainer behavior. And so we have all these signals. And then what we do is, if we see enough signals that are, um, you know, uh, suspicious, right? Okay, so
1: it's kind of oriented to behavioral, sort of like measure, me- measurements of behavioral attitudes toward co- towards code. Not necessarily only scanning the code per se, Correct, right? yeah. Oh, wow.
0: it, a lot of it is static analysis, so a lot of it is scanning okay. the code, but then there's, combined with, metadata around the package and the maintainer behavior. And the, the combination of those is actually a very strong signal, because for example, say you've been using a package in your company for for the last uh, you know, two years, okay? yeah. and now a new version comes out. This is a, let's say it's a patch version, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a, supposed to be a very minor change, yeah. right? And you notice, oh, well this patch version was published by a new maintainer, okay? And it now, this package now makes network connections, mm. and it never did before. Mm. Okay, and now it also runs an install script, meaning it's gonna run shell code immediately when you install the package. That's strange, okay, yeah. that's not normal. And then, and you can keep adding these on, and, you, and when you look at supply chain attacks in the wild, and you look at NPM, and you look at Py, uh, PyPI, and you look at the, the, the attacks we see, they tend to stand out like that, where you see yeah. if somebody had just asked these basic questions about the new version, they would, it would have stood out like a sore thumb, like extremely obvious that there's something about this new version that it requires an explanation before we update to it.
1: But let me stop you right there and connect with something we, you and I were talking about before recording. How come... Uh, this is connected with what we, you and I were talking about The responsibility of package managers, right? Um, There was a talk earlier yesterday in which some person mentioned that the responsibility of package managers should be much higher than it currently is because they should be to a certain degree responsible for what they host, right? While you and I disagree on that with that person or with that opinion, I also baffle at the fact that in your example, you said that someone uploaded a Different version of the same package. So, in a sense, shouldn't a responsible uh, package manager, de- you know, detect that uh, this uh, package comes from this person and only this person is able to update it, or this community, or this project, right? Th- there needs to be some signature, some some attribution, some attestation of what is stored there, so that effectively you can call the new version of a certain package in such a way because you know the origin of it, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think I get what you're gesturing at. The the only thing that makes this hard is packages pass between different maintainers all the time. Okay. It's sort of a standard practice that, you know, someone who starts a project gets tired of it after a year. Yeah, they hand it off to somebody else. And so, you know, you could argue when that handoff happens that perhaps we should... Um, treat that as a much more significant event than we do today. And that's actually what Socket is. I mean, that's one of the things Socket does. Okay, yeah. It treats that as a significant event. That's something you can alert on and say, new maintainer, new publisher, I want to know that. Right? Yeah,
1: it's true. Instead of putting a burden on that event, it is fairly common that open source projects, you know, the leadership relegates into another all this,
0: Especially in the world where we have these, these, these micro packages. You know, there's... You know, I'm, I maintain one hundred packages when I was doing this full time, right? And so there's a lot of those those where uh, I'm not doing the best maintenance job. And so somebody yeah. who comes along and says, "Hey, I'd like to help up. you," I say, "Yeah, sure. Go ahead and help me. Here's the you know, here's some access." And hopefully, you know, I hopefully you know I, I tried to do a good job vetting those people. But you know, when you're dealing with um, uh, just a, a whole ecosystem of this, you can't
1: impossible we can't
0: rely on perfect vetting. And so um, yeah, I mean, I think you're right. The package manager could do a better job of, of maybe of maybe indicating this uh, significant. Bit change in, in risk. But I also think the consumer has a role to play here yeah. because you know, you're, you're ultimately downloading random code from the internet and building your application out of it. And so there should be some responsibility for um, auditing it. And, and I don't want to place the blame too much on the yeah. consumer because you know, while I do think they have a role, I have to say it's been really, really hard to actually do the right thing here, even if you want to. It's been super hard for security practitioners, developers to actually evaluate the safety of their open source yep. code, even if they want to, because the tooling doesn't make it easy. The best you can, the best, pretty much the best you get today is, uh, you know, you can do a CVE scan and say, all right, this package has zero CVEs, therefore it must be safe to use, right? But the truth is, uh, if you install a package, let's say you typo your installation. This is a common attack, typo squatting, right? Yeah. If you install a package, you make a typo, you install something, this could be a package which has, you know, um, has no CVEs. It might only have uh, been downloaded 10 times total, right? Or or, or zero times. Now you're the first person installing this. Do you think any security researcher has actually gone and looked at this package and found and and really tried to to find vulnerabilities in it? First of all, it might not even be a vulnerability that you're worried about. It might be an actual virus or or malware. And so you're the first person running this. There's no CVEs. That's not safe to run. And so this is my my other gripe with sort of the the signing, the folks who talk a lot about signing packages is that you can have a perfectly signed package uh, that you know, you know exactly who published it in the sense of you know it's this email address that published it. Yeah. It has, um, but then when you when you, you open up that package, that beautifully signed package, there's a big turd inside. You know, like <laughs> <laughs> it's like it matters what the contents of the package are. Yeah. Right? To some, you know, to, to yeah. a pretty pretty True. significant extent. Yeah. So in this example, the type of squatting example, right? That could be a perfectly signed package. Yep. That is just not something you want to run. Right? You know, so completely. Yeah. yeah.
1: So what is your opinion on S-bombs? Because um, should they contain the information, the the complete? Should they be connected and contain information about vulnerabilities? So should they remain as a map of the components of uh, any given um, software package?
0: So I I have um, I don't have a super strong opinion. Um, I think it seems to me like you know there's a lot of folks trying to use SBOM for different use cases and it's all getting bundled into this one type of you know standard and this one terminology. Uh, and so I think. Um, you know, adding vulnerability information into SBOMs, it can be useful if you're trying to, you know, snapshot a point in time, you know, what, were the, what was the situation at this date. But, um, but I actually, I lean much more toward the side that an SBOM should really just be an inventory of what the dependencies are and the versions that were, that were used. And then um, there's an infinite amount of useful information you can yeah. be adding on to that that it goes way beyond vulnerabilities. Like, you know, just to toot my own horn a bit at it's, it's Socket, like, I mean, you know, knowing, knowing all these other risk signals about yeah. your dependencies are much more useful in, in determining what's, you know, what are the risks in your supply chain. So if a vendor gives you their SBOM, um, you know, again, seeing that there's zero CVEs in there, uh, to me that's less interesting than knowing that actually this, this SBOM that they've handed me, I can tell you that uh, 15 of the dependencies make network connections and these are the URLs that they possibly connect to, right? And also there's uh, two dependencies that have obfuscated blobs of code that who knows what they do, yeah. and also uh, four of them are you know completely unmaintained and haven't received an update in five years. This type of like this is the kind of stuff Socket yes. can tell you. Yes. And it goes way beyond CVEs, right? Yeah. It really like it gives you like a holistic yeah, picture, right? Can you give us a example,
1: a real world example of any client, any user of Socket that has solved a problem uh, with an NPM or uh, PyPI uh, package?
0: Yeah, for sure. So I mean we have uh, around 2,500 organizations using us today. Uh, and uh, over 100,000 GitHub repositories who have Socket enabled and are actively protecting uh, every pull request. So every PR that comes in, the dependencies get analyzed. And so there's a whole bunch of stories I could tell you. The, the, one, that, uh, the one that comes to my mind that I think is, since we're on this subject of, of uh, CVEs yeah. uh, versus, versus uh, malware, uh, I'll just mention this one, but uh, there's, a tool, there's a popular tool that a lot of people use to, uh, to keep their dependencies up to date. In uh, in uh, in GitHub. Yeah. And uh, I don't want to call anyone out. But. I know. I know. Okay. <laughs> but uh, but so th- this tool, you know, uh, asked one of our, our customers to update to a new version because it fixes a CVE, and so it sent them a pull automatic pull request and said, you know, here you go, here's an update. And uh, it's true that, that that pull request did fix the CVE, okay. but it also happened to update a transitive dependency. Which introduced a supply chain attack. Oh, fantastic! Yeah, and so Socket, uh, you know, we were installed on that repo, and so Socket helpfully came in and left a, a comment on that PR and said, "Hey, this, uh, you know, this dependency change you're making here has, you know, this this uh, protestware embedded within it. Uh, you know, this is a supply chain attack from, you know, from a maintainer who's protesting this cause. Yeah. Just beware before updating." And the customer saw that and said, "You know, okay, thank you, Socket. You know, <laughs> I'm glad that we didn't listen to the other tools." So.
1: Nice, nice. Well done. Well yeah. done. So you've also been so, as you say, and we've discussed here. You've for now focused on the npm JavaScript community and the Python community, but you've also been uh, riding the new wave of large language models. And mm. I, I think that I mean, I'm I'm more familiar with uh, code suggestion. Um, um, uh, AI or large language models for uh, test creation, whether it's unit testing and so forth, but I can see really well, really good applications of it for what you are gonna tell us, right? Because you, you have been playing around uh, with chat GPT specifically about with um, using it for threat detection, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I, I have to say for a long time in security, whenever the word AI uh, has come up, it's been snake oil and it's been kind yeah. of this sort of uh, fake kind of uh, marketing term. And uh, I have to say with the ChatGPT and these new large language models, it's actually, it's pretty different than the, than the previous decade of AI hype. Because we've been able to use ChatGPT and Socket to actually detect novel malware that no one has found bef- before. And uh, we're doing it within seconds of the package being published to NPM or, 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 or PyPI. So we analyze every new publish, yeah, and we do it where we, we actually um, use the large language model to, uh, to assess the risk of the different signals that we've found okay. and, and make a determination if the package is safe or not. And then once it makes that determination, it also explains in English, you know, in human you know, readable uh, English, about why this package is malicious. So it's been pretty amazing uh, to see. And if you go to our website, uh, socket.dev, you can see many examples of the types of explanations that it writes. But it's, it's, it'll say things like, This package is malicious because it collects your environment variables and your SSH keys and sends them to a remote server. (laughs) This is malicious behavior. That's the kind of summary you get. Oh, it's beautiful. Beautiful, yeah. yeah.
1: Plain language, short to the point.
0: Much, much better than an alert that just says, you know.
1: Why would you say LLMs are very well suited to, I guess, I guess to do two things, to explain it in one, in the way that you described, for example, in simple terms, but also to to be able to interpret the, to find the correct data in, in software in this, in this case.
0: Yeah. So, I think the explainability is obviously awesome. Uh, yeah. And but then also, the the thing that we're dealing with 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 security alerts is that there's just such a mountain of noise. And so, if you think about LLMs as, uh, and this is kind of, uh, I, I don't mean to uh, to to um, to humanize them into to, too too yeah. much, but but uh, but you know you can kind of think of them like What's, what, anything that an intern could do at your, at your company, right, that's kind of what you can use an LLM yeah. for today. It's at about, at about that level. Um, and so what you can use it for is initial triage of alerts. So if, if you have a mountain of alerts and you want to know which should I look at first, um, having, having a basic first-level pass where you, you give the fire hose to the LLM and you yeah. have it do that prioritization is very, very useful. Yeah. And so we use that to, to cut down on the, on the noise of, 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 of sort of every signal we find that could potentially be a thread we would be chasing, and then that ends up yielding a pretty high signal um, output. Yeah. Right? And so that's how we're able to we find all this malware that we wouldn't be able to sift through before. Right. I don't know if that makes sense, but it's... it's it does, it's, it does. It's a
1: good filter, a trustworthy filter, I guess, and... Uh... I mean, it's
0: not perfect. It's, like it's certainly, um, you know, it's, it's not like a, a, a you know, panacea, and, but, but I do think that um, it, it can... It, it, it's, it's, a lot of folks aren't paying attention to to this stuff because they think it's all hype. But there's actually a level of a synthesizing and an analysis that these can actually do, and they can come up with novel um, insights. So if you tell the model, you know, this package you know, reads this, this file, and it, uh, it, it, it reads these, these environment variables with these names, and it, and it makes these network connections, and it has this, um, you know, these function names, and it, and it calls them in this pattern, and then you ask it to, um, to tell you, does this seem yeah. suspicious, right? Uh, just in the way that, that a human would be able to ter- sort of take those, those those signals in and say, you know, yeah, that seems kind of weird. You know, it has that same level of, of, of understanding to some yeah.
1: extent. And one of the most common, I guess, complaints about actionability of security tools, whether it's a static analysis of your code and so forth, is that you don't, you, A, you don't understand it, and B, you don't, never know what to do. So if you've, if from this, Application of ChatGPT, you get at least uh, you know a, a proper explanation of why ChatGPT thinks this is a threat, and a, again a very actionable um, item of you know go and do this mm-hmm. uh, in simple terms. I think that's a great advan- advancement compared to the status quo. To be honest,
0: yeah, yeah, we've been playing with these models uh, for quite a while now, almost going on a year. So we've oh, okay. we've been we've been uh, pretty excited by this. It's not like you know just uh, like yeah, playing around,
1: messing around. Yeah, I know
0: it's actually a core part of the product at this point. Okay. Um, so the the other thing that I want to mention is these models are very expensive. Yeah. So they're very very expensive. So if you wanted to deploy, you know, uh, something like this to, to scan all of uh, npm, all of PyPy, and, and of course we're expanding to additional languages too. I should mention. Yeah. Um, it's a lot of code to analyze. It's extremely uh, cost prohibitive. Yeah. So you know, part of the benefit of using Socket is that we do that work once. So if we've already analyzed an open source package, then we can tell you know, all of our customers, all of our users about it without them each having to pay that cost. And, yeah. and, uh, and, and so there's some kind of uh, economies of scale yes. that come from, from centralizing that.
1: Anything else that have you, has you excited about threat analysis, malware analysis, at the scale of the JavaScript community and I'm not looking at, you know, very niche, Stuxnet, uh, <laughs> you know, nation state, no, no, no I mean, I'm excited. I mean, not excited, but I'm intrigued and interested in those uh, because they have a very powerful effect in, mm-hmm. in large populations. But no, no, at the more user level, which has also a massive impact, as you described before with the uh, protest, uh, what was it, protest malware? Protestware?
0: They call it protestware. Okay, That's well. the kind of term. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Anything that has you excited about data apart from GPT? Uh
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that I'm excited that the conversation is starting to shift. I mean, I think we've... Socket has 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 uh, started to shift the conversation around known vulnerabilities, and I think a lot more companies now are recognizing that there's this um, bigger, there's more than known vulnerabilities when it comes to open source security. And I'm excited to see, like, you know, as a community, as we start to take the supply chain more seriously and we start to to to, um, to harden it against these types of attacks, like what we can do. Uh, and I think, I think, um, you know. Open source is this incredible, beautiful thing that lets us build software super quickly. We can build stuff in days that would have taken, you know, months or years before. It's a it's a beautiful thing that we've been able to get this level of coordination amongst mutual, you know, uh, peers. Random, yeah, peers of, of or not even people don't even know each other in yeah. a lot of cases, right? And it's it's amazing. I just don't want this beautiful thing, which is open source, to be to, to, to you know, I don't want to lose any ground on this. And I think I just think if we can't get the supply chain under control and get trust back in it, then I think we're gonna have problems, so.
1: And do you, the, this is the last thing, and I don't presume that you are aware of uh, regulation in the European Union or here, although there's nothing yet, but are, do you fear that regulation is coming because we collectively have been unable to harden the supply chain, especially in the open source world, the closed source is different, I guess, but, um, or, or or do you actually welcome some sort of um, regulation? What's your opinion about whatever is coming? Because we don't know if any acts or laws are being implemented right now.
0: Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, usually. I, I think, I don't think we we should jump straight to 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 regulation as the uh, answer here. Um, I think there's a lot that the that the government I've, you know, has already started doing. If you look at the the White House executive order that yeah. came out a few years ago and. and the, more recently, there's been there's been more movement on that front. That I think um, the carrot can actually be quite uh, motivating, and you don't always always need to go straight to the stick uh, approach. Exactly. So, yeah. So I think I think uh, you know
1: what would be your carrot then? Do you know? Because I mean, I just I, I think I mentioned it briefly in, in passing in uh, a few minutes ago. But uh, uh, Eric Brewer from Google and from uh, um, uh, Cap Theorem Fame. Um, He's coined this uh, idiom of, of curation, which is, again, this role that helps harden, especially open source projects. But, but I, I fail to see how this is supported, right? Where the money comes from, where the carrot is being mm. placed, and by who, right?
0: I mean, I think the things that government does really well are um, funding public goods. So open source is almost certainly, uh, you know, it should be, it is, it is a classic uh, public good. I mean, it helps Correct. everybody. And it doesn't get funded nearly enough today. And I experienced this myself when I was a maintainer. You know, it, it was uh, I was doing, I, th- I think, a pretty pretty nice service to the world with my open source maintenance. But um, you know, companies like that benefited, you know, didn't didn't see a need to to, to, to fund it, you know, to, to fund it a lot of the time. And I think, you know, I don't want to um, I don't want to uh, blame them. Everyone is is just you know doing their best, and and there's a lot of self interest uh, when it comes to you know just. Why pay for something when you don't have to, and no one else is paying for it, right? But this is a classic case where the government can actually do a yeah. good job, you know, funding public goods. So I don't know. Um, I think that's a that's a good starting point. I've, the EU is and certain EU countries have actually started to uh, to, to look into this more seriously, uh, funding critical open source projects. Correct, yeah, yeah, and putting up grants, and and uh, and I'm very optimistic that that, that will uh, do a do a, do a lot. Nice, fantastic.
1: So. What should we expect from Socket, this is the last question, from Socket <laughs> in the following months? Is there any news that are coming apart from, well, <laughs> I guess, solidifying your chat TPT functionality, but anything, any any specific language, actually? Is there is there a next one?
0: Yeah, Go is next. Oh, uh, wow, nice. And then we're going to do Java.
1: Oh, wow. Yeah, Java is going
0: to be a hard one. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, that'll be fun. But, uh, no, we're doing them uh, one at a time, and I just want to say the reason why we take this approach is just that there's so many uh, security tools out there that try to boil the ocean, and they do, you know, they check all the boxes, but they do everything very mediocre. Yeah. You know, and, and our approach has always been to to do a good job and to meaningfully improve security, not just to check boxes. So we're going one language at a time, very deliberately, uh, adding, uh, add, you know, and, and launching them only when we're confident that we're that we're doing um, a, a really good job. So, um, yeah, I think in the next few months, look for, look out for Go, look out for Java and uh, look out for m- massive improvement in our um, user interface uh, for security teams. Because today we do a really good job with developers yes. directly giving them messages in GitHub. Yes. But we're, 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 well, we're... Security
1: teams might not be as comfortable in a repo pull mm-hmm. request environment. Exactly, right? exactly.
0: So giving them more uh, you know, API-based access to, to the alerts and to the data and then a beautiful uh, uh, you know, way to to um, action these uh, in a a dashboard. That's what we're um, working on right now. Nice. Well, all the
1: best, and hopefully we can uh, talk about it in the future. Cool. Thank you so much. My pleasure.